Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. So hi, I'm, I'm Tom Colicchio, and, and I'm sure that some of you know me from Top Chef, uh, where I play that, that strict, stern judge, and you know, from rolling my eyes and, and kind of making people nervous. But I'm also a chef and, and restaurateur. I've been cooking for well over 40 years now. Uh, also, I'm a co-founder of Food Policy Action. And so, but uh, I, I guess my, 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 hold on a second. I didn't like where I was going with this. Let me try this again. Hey, I'm Tom Colicchio. This is my podcast, Citizen Chef. You know, I am a working chef. I have uh, seven restaurants, some in Manhattan, out in Los Angeles, and Las Vegas. I also have a, a, another side of me. I am a, a food activist. And what, what does that mean? I'm on a conference call every morning with 100 chefs across the country. Again, the Family First program, the SNAP program, is actually has expanded. We got rid of all the restrictions to receive we SNAP. Open up, we got uh, to talk about not just the economics here. Cafeteria workers, they are first offenders at this point, and they need to be treated that way. They are doing, they're doing God's work right you now. You heard from our next senator from Pennsylvania. So you're asking yourself, why the chef? Why is he up here right now? Let me tell you, I'm just a regular guy. I was the first food correspondent on MSNBC, and um, you know that that uh, that was a pretty good gig for a while until uh, uh, the election three years ago, when that kind of knocked food off the table. <laughs> um, so I decided to turn this into a podcast, and um, this podcast is is really going to tell a story about food through the news of the day. You know, everywhere I look when I see a news story, I immediately link it to the food system. You know, whether it's immigration, military preparedness, healthcare, and even the economy, every single one of these issues is touched by food and the food that we eat. We're going to interview experts and people that are responsible for our food policy, as well as farmers and food producers all through this country. We're going to see if we can make our food system a more equitable one for all. I kind of came to food politics in a very interesting way. My wife is a filmmaker, and she co-directed a film called A Place to Table, and it looked at hunger in America. 
We uh, figured out pretty quickly when we started doing research on the film that people in this country are not hungry because of famine or because of war, because of drought. People are hungry in this country because uh, they often don't have the dollars to feed themselves, and we don't have the political will to make sure everyone is well-nourished here. Well, every single president since Reagan has gone on record saying that if one, if one person is hungry in this country, we failed, and yet nothing seems to happen about it. And this is both Republicans and Democrats, and nothing seems to happen about it. And so um, hopefully um, with this film we could shine a light on this, and hopefully that will start uh, a, a, a public discourse as and well. And so as- uh, after my wife's film came out, it really gave me a platform, especially to talk about hunger, food issues in a very different context that put me right in the crosshairs of a political conversation. And very soon after... As a founding member of Food Policy Action. Uh, I co-founded an organization called Food Policy Action. Jeff. Thank you, Ken. Thanks. Happy Food Day. A DC-based group that worked on various food policies and whether it were issues of hunger and farming and transparency in the food system or fishing. We produced a scorecard. We graded Congress on how they voted on various food issues. This is about, about values. So if, if you value how your food is made, if you value where your food comes from, if you value uh, farm uh, communities. So uh, how, how did I get here? How did I go from being a, a chef and, and a TV personality to, to activist? I, I guess we should, we should take you through a brief journey of, of how I got here. Back to, uh, you know, growing up. You know, I grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey. I grew up in a, a kind of family where we had to be home every single night for dinner. And I saw how important food was, and not only in terms of, of nourishing us and keeping us healthy, but uh, how it brought people around the table and created those conversations. My dad was a, a union organizer, and he helped on some local campaigns. And my mother ran a school cafeteria. And, uh, you know, I didn't really think much of that. It happens every noon for the pupil who takes advantage of the lunch program. This noontime lunch may be the only real food some of these children see all day long. Miss school and miss lunch. So it's important they're fed here with someone to care for them. I I never really thought much about it in terms of giving back to a community. Later on, I, I learned how important that job actually was. One policy issue that has really made a difference, generally I think is very good, it's better school food. May we keep it, please. I would like to introduce uh, Mary Nessel. Hi, Tom. We're talking to her today because she literally wrote the book on, on the politics of food. I was going to all these meetings about childhood obesity in the mid-1990s, and I would go to these meetings and think, are you kidding me? How come nobody's talking about how the food industry is marketing junk food to kids? You know, why aren't they talking about the environment in which parents are trying to feed their children? I was pretty upset by it. So I started writing articles about it, and those articles led to my book, Food Politics, which has a chapter on feeding kids and exactly that kind of thing. Her books have been so helpful to me, and and, um, she's really helped shape my ideas around food policy, and so I, I thought this would be a great place to start. How's it going? It's not bad. It's not bad. Well, like most people, Marion uh, and I are practicing our social distancing during this pandemic. So we uh, we spoke via Zoom. I'm in the uh, highest risk demographic for this thing. Yeah. 
obviously so much has changed. Um, but I want to sort of start off because and part of the reason I, I wanted to talk to you is because if ever I had to go to the Hill of Talk policy, usually um, I call to you first and uh, just to understand policy a little better and understand it from someone who knows it inside and out. Um, you you kind of wrote the book on food policy when it comes to teaching it. How, how did you how did you get how did you you start teaching food policy? Well, my I have a doctorate in molecular biology. I'm a lapsed molecular biologist. On my first teaching job, I was given a nutrition course to teach. It was like falling in love. Um, I had been teaching cell and molecular biology to pre-med students, and it was very abstract and difficult for them to understand. And when I started teaching nutrition, I could see that this was the most wonderful way to teach undergraduate biology because everybody got it. Everybody eats, everybody's interested in food. You could talk about metabolism. You could talk about all kinds of serious biological concepts within the context of food. And everybody just ate it up, Mm -hmm. as it were. When did you first start teaching food policy at NYU? That was 1976. Uh, you know, I taught a class in uh, nutrition, and in that class, I remember using as readings a book that had been written by Center for Science in the Public Interest called Food for People, Not for Profit, that could have been written yesterday. Hmm. I remember using some articles that were in the New York Review of Books about sugar policy in that very first class, because uh, I had never seen anything like that. And it was written by a very serious academic who just couldn't believe that the way that sugar subsidies and tariffs, the tariff system worked, was to make sugar more expensive in order to protect the businesses of sugar growers in Louisiana. Nebraska is recognized for one minute. When I first came to Congress in 1975, sugar prices were skyrocketing. Consumers were furious then, but I do not hear consumers complain anymore. Time of the gentlelady has expired. The gentleman from New York is recognized. We see displayed before us boxes of cereal and cans of soda, and the suggestion is made that with the thousands of people who compete there, that if we reduce one of the raw material prices into that, that that will not be passed on to the consumer. Nonsense. Time of the gentleman has expired. Gentleman from Louisiana. Mr. Chairman, I yield my remaining time to the chairman of the Agriculture Committee, Mr. De La Garza. Gentleman is recognized. Vote no on the Downey Amendment. It's Jobs USA, Jobs USA, Jobs USA, Jobs USA. You can't cut it anymore. You can't hide it anymore. It's jobs, jobs, jobs in the USA. Vote no on the amendment. Will the gentleman yield? I yield. I thank the chairman for yielding. Let me point out, the Europeans support sugar at 30 cents a pound. The United States at 18 cents. Our farmers will compete head up with anyone, but we can't compete against the European Will the gentleman yield? Will the Time of the gentleman has expired. Jobs USA. Um, you know, again, this was 40 years ago, and nothing has changed. Right. Yeah. I mean, in a way, has it gotten worse, do you think? Before COVID hit, um, you know, the supermarkets have much, much better food than they did 30 years ago. 
more farmers markets, more community supported agriculture. But at the same time, the marketers have gotten even better at, at selling unhealthy food to, to people as well. And at the same time, if you're rich and educated, it's really easy to eat healthfully, um, or it was before COVID hit. So we have, we have to talk about pre-COVID and post-COVID. You know, when I first conceived this podcast, I wanted to talk about food and what we eat and why we eat it and how the food gets to us and, and what it means to us, how it unites us and brings us around a table. This podcast was originally going to expose the fragility of our food system through conversations that we hear on the news all the time, issues around the economy and, and health care. Will you take a hard look at those issues and try to in- improve the quality of health care and education for the Native American people? Yes, I will, and I take it seriously. Immigration and the environment. And then COVID happened. Various industries are starting to feel the brunt of the virus as the pandemic continues to drastically alter Americans' daily lives. In a matter of weeks, the restaurant industry tanked due to shelter-in-place orders. Meat processing facilities were compromised by the virus. Unemployment skyrocketed, forcing people who had never experienced food insecurity to wait in mile-long car lines at food banks. All the while, we're seeing food that's being thrown out highlighting exactly how delicate and inflexible our food system really is. Let's let our viewers take part in this conversation. We'll start with Bill, who's calling from Northbrook, Illinois. Bill, good morning. Good morning. I I saw these images from San Antonio where 10,000 cars were lined up uh, at at some food banks in San Antonio. Now, Now, my question is this. I live in a, in a relatively affluent area, and there's there's a food bank. And but how the people that are lined up in San Antonio are these people that have applied for SNAP and not been accepted, or I mean, who are these people? I think COVID has done one really terrific thing, and that's to expose how the food system works. In this podcast, we'll be looking at that food system that we've relied on to feed people all over the world and how the pandemic has compromised it in a really visible way. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. If COVID has done anything, it's to expose the problems with the healthcare system. But I think with the food system also. Mary, if you were if you were teaching 
What does your lesson plan look like post-COVID? What has it changed? For me, COVID is the perfect illustration of everything I've been teaching for years. And it just highlights the contradictions in our food system and the way that a system that is set up for profit, not to promote the health of humans or the health of the planet, is destructive and vulnerable. And, and COVID points out the vulnerability of the, the vulnerability of the system, which may not have been obvious before. So in a way, it makes teaching easier. What you want is you want a food system that's resilient, that can deal with something like this. And that means that it has to be decentralized much more than it currently is, and focused on much more on human welfare than on corporate profits. And boy, that takes some thinking. What about point it. does the health of the planet and the health of, of individuals when does that become more valuable? And where's the profit in that? What policies can you create? What levers are there you can pull that would make healthy food more profitable and make the health of the planet more profitable? Well, that has to happen through government. There are things that government is really good for, and this is one of them. And I think that it would be possible with no trouble at all to dream up government regulations that would make for a much healthier food system for everybody. Many of our Democratic colleagues have rushed to embrace the so-called Green New Deal. The Green New Deal that was you know, put up by some legislators was a step in that direction, could go much further. But the Green New Deal would kill our country. The deal, Green New Deal would have a devastating effect on the world, and it's not going to happen anyway because it's impossible for them to do it. If you ever look at what they want to do under the Green New Deal, it's, it's like baby talk. I mean, I'm someone who believes that there's a role for government in these kinds of things, and that the kinds of food regulations that we have now are set up to promote corporate profit. That's what they're set up to do. That's because we have an electoral system and a lobbying system where corporations have the money to make legislators do what they want. One of the things that the virus has exposed also are the lobbying forces behind some of these kinds of rules. We're going to be taking a look at this new trend, bioengineered crops, and what, if anything, the federal government should do about it. Our first call from Mr. Bettelheim is from Cleveland, Ohio. Good morning. Good morning. I think they should be fairly regulated. Because... Uh, you're dealing with things that most people don't understand, and it could be harmful. You begin to see how the system works in a way that a lot of people may not have noticed or don't realize. So you could have regulations that set a level playing field for food corporations that enabled them to make a profit, just maybe not as much of a profit. If you look at where the profits go, and you look at where the bailout money is going, the bailout money is going to corporations that are paying their executives very high salaries, that are giving stockholders the dividends that they have been promised, and that are not paying the workers who are doing the work. The National Black Farmers Association, good morning. Thank you for being with us. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. A demonstration here in Washington against the Agriculture Department in particular right. and the government in general. What's it all about? Well, basically, uh, we've been struggling with the United States Department of Agriculture for about uh, since December of 1996. And 
we've made many trips to Washington, D.C., and uh, since that time, the, the issue has really uh, escalated to where the farmers are at dire stress right Inequality now. Inequality in the United States has gotten the way it was in the 1920s. Somehow people survived in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s. For 40 years, we had much less inequality in this country, and the country did very well. Right. Uh, my father sold wheat uh, in 1940 for, for, two, for almost $2 a bushel, and, and wheat is not selling uh, today uh, for just about the same price. And uh, at that time, uh, a loaf of bread was a dime, and today it's almost $2. So there's a lot of profitability that's going somewhere, and it's, it's not going to farmers, whether it's white or black or whatever color it may be. The economy boomed. Everybody did really well. They just didn't make excessive profits. The kinds of money that the upper 1% makes now are ridiculous. They couldn't possibly spend it all. You you need enough money to be able to live a decent life. And then beyond that, what are you going to do with it? You know, the system that is really there to benefit, you know, big ag and and large producers, it doesn't really take care of of eaters. It doesn't take care of small farmers. It doesn't take care of ranchers and and fishermen, people who actually are working uh, in, in that food system to produce food. COVID really changed the face of food. It's really shown us what our food system really is is like and how vulnerable it is. So... Again, post-COVID, what, what do you want to see come out of this? What do you think is attainable right now? Like, for instance, I think right now, I, if you had asked me four months ago whether or not we could have national health care or national, national insurance for health care, I would say there's no way you're going to get 60 votes in the Senate. And now I'm thinking that possibly there, there may be an appetite, especially when you look at 22 million people who were laid off. And most cases, health care is tied to your workplace. Yeah. So probably 16 million of those people have no longer have health care, I would imagine. Some of them may still have health care. And so it's showing just, just how our system does not work. It's exposing yeah. that. And so the, the question is, how can you take that exposure and turn it into legislation when you are fighting an insurance industry and a political party that is completely opposed to it, and that political party happens to be in power now? You know, I think we're really hungry for smart solutions. You know, especially now as food insecurity is growing and people are, are more vulnerable than ever. And so it's, it's easy to point out how, how things are broken. But the aim of this podcast is to not only point out what is wrong with our food system, but to give some concrete ideas of how we can solve these problems and, and make sure that we all have a, a shot at healthy, nutritious food. And I don't have a crystal ball on this. I can tell you what I'd like to see. Universal health care. I'd like to see universal school meals. I'd like to see a federal subsidy system for agriculture that rewards the growers of fruits and vegetables for producing them at a price that people can actually afford. I'd like to see, I mean, certainly a, a minimum livable wage for everybody. Corporations that hire large numbers of employees in the food system pay them minimum wage, and those employees are on food stamps so that the taxpayers are subsidizing those corporations for paying low wages. There's something wrong with that. That that needs a fix. I don't think that would be hard to fix if there were political will. So the real question is, how do you get the political will? It depends on how angry the population gets about what's going on.
Well, right now there is an element deliberately fostering a movement to try to unlock the economy and expose lots and lots of people to the virus. But uh, we're going to be back and we're opening our country. And I hope that the lockdown governors, I don't know why they continue to lock down, because if you look at Georgia, if you look at Florida, if you look at the ones that are most energetic about opening, they are doing tremendous business. And that this is what these numbers are all about. So what if people die? I mean, I've heard people say that. It just takes my breath away. Yeah, but I, I mean, I guess, I guess my hope is that COVID can bring together some sort of cooperation. Wouldn't that um, be nice? Wouldn't, wouldn't, it be, <laughs> wouldn't it be nice? Well, I think that you have to use the political system in the way everybody else uses the political system. You get as many people together as you possibly can to write letters, to call to Zoom their congressional representatives and make their congressional representatives know that they want a better food assistance system. They want a better health care system. They want better school food. And they want these things and think that they deserve these things and demand these things. I mean, this is time for political action, but it requires large numbers of people doing it, and that means they have to be organized in some way. But if enough individuals call and complain, the congressional representatives will hear them. And they won't hear just one person. They have to hear lots of people. And I don't know any other way to do it. Yeah, I, 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 wish, I wish your crystal ball actually worked and a lot of the things that as you envision it, I think would make for a better, a better country. You know, hopefully, I guess my, my hope is that, you know, COVID will bring about uh, together, you know, some unity, some coming together of these issues, at least a, a way to, to discuss them and move issues forward as opposed to just flat out, you know, sides are drawn and we're not getting anywhere. But uh, anyway, I'm sure I'll, I'll see more of you out there. Uh, I certainly hope so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wanted uh, Miriam to, to be on the first episode because whenever I need help, uh, if I was going to the Hill and, and lobbying on around something, I, I always tried to get Marion on the phone first because she just had great insight, not only to food systems, but the policies that we need to, to change to create a, a more just system. So, you know, the American food system really is, it's a web, it's complex. And once you start pulling on one string, you find that it's all connected to others. And so... We're going to explore all of that. We're going to actually uh, take a look at how the sausage is made, so to speak. I like to say I've seen both. I've seen how law is made and, so and, and how sausage is made, and I'll stick to the sausage. And no, this isn't a story about recipes, and it's not a podcast about, uh, you know, all the cool things happening in the chef world. You know, that's all great, and that podcast has been done. We're going to look at a new path forward and how to make the, our food system more equitable for everyone involved. Look at that plate of food or, or when we're shopping and start to think about how that food got there. Not only the people that were involved in producing that food, the farm workers who are picking those vegetables and the processors that are processing it and the people that are delivering it and everyone involved in getting that there and, and knowing that there are policies in place uh, that affect all of those workers. We're, we're going to take a look at all of that. Uh, thanks to Dr. Mary Nessel for her wisdom and her friendship. A very special thanks to my wife, Lori Silverbush and Kristen Castry at a place at the table for their insights and guidance. Citizen Chef with me, Tom Colicchio, is a production of iHeartRadio. Our executive producer is Christopher Hasiotis. Our researcher is Jesslyn Shields. And our producer is Gabrielle Collins. 
Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and please check us out next week. Thanks. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app.